0: Thank you brother Eric and welcome to those that are here as well as those that are watching us online. We are going through the book of Philippians and today we are beginning the second chapter of the book of Philippians and we're going to cover the first four verses in which Paul is talking about the unity of the church that is expected from God. Um, In in the book of Philippians. So if you are able to stand please stand for the reading of God's word and we're going to read Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 4. And the word of the Lord says so if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love any participation in the spirit any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father thank you so much for your word for your word is truth we ask that this morning as we read these verses of encouragement of admonition inspired by your holy spirit to the apostle paul that you would indeed bring us encouragement comfort and love may your holy spirit teach us and remind us what you have done and how that should manifest in our church unity that we put into practice through our obedience, our church unity, and would it be for the glory of Jesus? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so the book of Philippians, by and large, is a letter that Paul is writing to the Philippian church in order to encourage them. He's writing to the church of Philippi, and he addresses very specifically in verse 1. Of the first chapter in the opening verse he makes it clear that this letter of the Philippians is being addressed to congregants to the Saints and then he also is stressing it to the overseers that will be the elders the pastors and to the deacons so this letter let us remind ourselves is to be understood in the context of a local church so are the other many of the other letters that Paul wrote These are letters that Paul wrote inspired by the Holy Spirit to a particular church. So they are addressed to the local church body. What we have learned so far in Philippians in chapter one, it is not simply that the book of Philippians is a set of pointers for us to follow and therefore be be able to better live. Now, it could be that, but it's much more than that. This is a letter In love, in patience, in admonition that Paul is writing as a shepherd to the church of Philippi. So that's the context in which this letter is to be understood as we proceed here in chapter 2. Now, what about the Philippian church do we know so far? We know that Paul is thankful and joyful for this church. Verses 3 and 4 talk about that in chapter 1. And he's joyful and thankful for them because they have partnered in the true gospel. Okay? Verse 6 says that they have, they have continued in the work that Christ began in them. And Christ is going to be faithful to finish that work in them. So that should be an encouragement for them. In verse 7, Paul says and assures the Philippians that they are partakers of him of the grace of God, the unmerited favor, the love that God has showered them with. Paul is saying, you guys are partakers of me with that. In verse eight, Paul says that he has great affection in Christ, great love for them as brothers and as a shepherd for them. In verse nine, he prays that this work of love through the spirit of God would keep endurance and would keep expanding in the Philippian community verse 10 says that he hopes that they will continue to be found blameless before god so as we can see paul is writing this letter of encouragement telling them that they are currently of no trouble to him he's not really concerned about the philippian church they are a relatively healthy church there are no uh, contentions or major disagreements or sexual immorality going on in the church as in other churches that Paul has written letters to in the New Testament. So this is for encouragement to them knowing that they are a Christian church. There are no signs of heresy such as with the letter to the Galatians. There are no signs of immorality such in the letters to the Corinthians. Yet Paul does not want them to have their guard down in regards to church unity. To be united within the local body. One can easily think, well, you know, I belong to a healthy, strong, reformed church. We are biblical. We are submitting to God's word. So we should be good. Wrong. Paul here, nevertheless, knowing that they are a healthy church, he's instructing the Philippians to be on guard. Not only that their teaching remains biblical, but that the practice of their theology remains faithful and truthful to God therefore he warns them to remain united as a church. So I have titled the sermon God's call for church unity. The concept here will be that church unity must be based up on something. What is our church unity based on the word of God? We submit. To God's word because otherwise God cannot be honored and there could be no true unity if we compromise what the scripture says either in order for the world to accept us to be friendly to the world or to conform to a current pop culture and evangelicalism that has watered down the gospel we cannot unite to that we need to unite based on what the word of God says How do we know this? Well, we know this because in the scriptures, God's church is called the pillar of truth, the support, the base on which truth is to be held and supported. We see that in 1 Timothy 3.15, which it reads, it's Paul writing again, it says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So here Paul makes it clear that the church is the pillar, is what supports, is the foundation for truth to be withheld, for church to be expanded, for church truth to be preached. A great responsibility for the church to guard the truth. So then we will see that a key truth is that truth itself will divide. Okay? Truth will divide. Jesus divides the gospel separates those who belong to Jesus from the rest We're reminded of what Jesus said himself Luke 12 51 Many times When we see this verse we if we see it out of context we could think wow that's very unlikely for Jesus to say but yes Let's hear out what the scripture says there Jesus talking Luke 12 51. It says do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. That's kind of odd, right? you think that Jesus would be about unity and love and tolerance. As we hear a lot of those buzzwords in our culture today. But why did Jesus say such thing? Well, that is because Jesus holds the exclusive spiritual and everlasting truth when it comes to the ultimate questions of right and wrong. When it comes to the ultimate questions of life and death jesus holds the exclusive truth and there is zero room for negotiating and adding or taking away or changing the claims of jesus in our fallen humanity our default position is to oppose what jesus has said everyone born as a human being as all of us are our default wiring in our minds and in our hearts is to oppose what jesus said and therefore When we are confronted with the truth claims of Jesus, we are divided. Last week, we spoke of the sufferings that Christians will experience because of the sake of Christ. Part of that suffering, as we saw, happens because we identify with Christ as Christians and uncomfortable consequences will many times follow. Therefore, we see that unity what is going to honor God must be unity around what the scripture says, around what the claims of Christ say. We are reminded by a great lay theologian, J.C. Ryle, who said unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. It is the very unity of hell. See that? Because if we unite around any compromise of the gospel we are actually uniting, not for God, but against God. Similarly, Professor Mike Horton says, quote, it is better to be divided by truth than united in error, Unquote. So as we start to see this morning that our unity must be in the truth of God and the truth of scriptures, let us ask ourselves two questions. One is, why is church unity our duty. Why should we be united as a church? And secondly, what are the signs that we are in fact united as a church? We're gonna explore these four verses in which we're gonna see three main points. First we're gonna see that true church unity is motivated by what God has done. God is not expecting his church body to be united based on a set of random or vague actions or facts. Now, he's very specific. What is the motivation for the, our unity? Secondly, we're going to see that true church unity is theologically accurate. We must know who God is. We must know who we are in order to unite around that truth. And then thirdly, we're going to see that church unity doesn't stop at theological knowledge. True church unity, rather, is humility in action, serving each other, loving each other, bearing each other's burdens. So motivation of unity, the basis of our unity, and then how is that practice, humility in action? So let us dig right in. First, what is the motivation of us being united as a church? We're going to look at what God in Christ has done already. So Philippians 2:1 reads, the first verse we're going to study, it says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, and then he'll go on. If that's true, then what should follow? And the Greek word here for if, it's actually not. Asking whether those things are present. But it's rather saying. Because of that. Since that is a fact. Then something else will be true. So a rewarding of it would be. Because you have encouragement in Christ. Since you have comfort from love. Since you are participants in the spirit. You have obtained tenderness and compassion. Right. So Paul is saying this upfront truths of what God has done as the confirmation of the work that God already has done in their congregation. An illustration of of this would be a father or a mother or both of them together speaking to their son who is either entering or is in the early teenage years. That could perhaps be some rebellious years, right? I would be one to know from my own experience as a teenager. But in this case, you could picture a faithful father or mother looking at their son and asking them, son, have I loved you? Have I not showed you that that I loved you? Haven't you been provided for, for your needs, for your nourishment, for your shelter, for your clothing? Even for your desires of certain gadgets and toys? Have I not granted you these things? Have I not cared for you? Have I not worked hard to provide for you? And as we see the context of those questions, and the parents are now saying, is it therefore not appropriate that you would show gratitude to us? Is it therefore... Not the right thing that you would respect us, that you would honor this house, that you would obey us. In that context, the parents asking the child those questions, it is implied that they've provided all these things for their loved son. They're not asking him to see if he would doubt that those things were given, but so that he would be confirmed that he is loved. In that similar sentiment, it's in the way that Paul is addressing the Philippians. You have been comforted. You have been loved. God has given you grace, sympathy. He's kept them free from error. He has blessed them with the expending of the gospel. The Holy Spirit has been given to them. And specifically, Paul reminds them of the spiritual benefits. Right? These are all spiritual benefits. Now granted, God in his goodness towards us, he does provide us with material blessings. But here, Paul is not using material blessings as a upfront declaration of why they should be faithful. He's specifying to them the spiritual blessings that they've received from God. That first blessing, he says that they have been encouraged in Christ. If there's any encouragement in Christ. So what, what has Christ done that you can be encouraged? Many times all these platitudes like, oh, be encouraged, brother. Uh, you know, even like, um, oh yeah, I'll be praying for you. And you really don't know what's going on in your lives. There's so many platitudes that we many times use. And we should really ponder and think about what the words that we use in our Christian living really mean. So we're gonna take a quick look at what those spiritual blessings in Christ mean. Encouragement in Christ. We know that Christ has encouraged us because first and foremost, he has exchanged our sin for his righteousness. If we are believers in Christ, we have been reconciled with God the Father because of what Christ has done. Let us take a look at 2 Corinthians 5:21, which says, "For our sake he made him to be sin who you knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God." Exchanging our wickedness for the perfection of Christ. Isn't that encouraging? We are also encouraged because in tribulation God in Christ gives us peace. John 16:33 says, This is Jesus speaking. He says, I have said this thing to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Isn't that encouraging that in our tribulations, in our troubles, Christ tells us not that we won't have them, but that he has overcome the world. He will be with us through those tribulations. We also see that in Christ, we're encouraged because our spirit has been made alive. Again, this could be a platitude. We could just say it and move on. But what does that mean? My brothers and sisters, Scripture says that we are spiritually dead. We do not understand the things of God. The gospel is foolishness to us. The cross is foolishness to us unless God divinely intervenes. Blows the breath of life into our spirit and makes us alive in our spirit. Then the light comes on and now we could see, we could understand who God is. That we need a savior. That we are lost without Christ. Our spirit has been made alive. Isn't that encouraging? Our spirit has been made alive in Christ. 1 Peter 3.18 confirms it. It says, for Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous that he may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. We are made alive in the Spirit because of Christ, so that we can understand the things of God. One last example of how we are encouraged. We are encouraged because on the basis of the righteousness of Christ, we have eternal life. Even when we die, this, this body is going to pass away. John eleven twenty five. Jesus speaking, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? It's the words of Jesus. Through his righteousness, through faith in him, through believing in him, we are guaranteed eternal life. It's not encouraging, right? If you have been encouraged in Christ, these are the things that Christ already has done. Next, that verse says, if you have any comfort from love. Do we know that God loves us? Do we know that we can be comforted in it? Well, one of the most famous verses in Christianity, John three sixteen, for love, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We know that He loved us because God gave His Son. He didn't ask for anything in return. He gave out of His goodness. How about comfort? Can we be comforted? Is God a God of comfort? Let us be reminded of 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and verse 5. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, So, through Christ, we shall abundantly be in comfort too. So we share not only suffering as Christ suffered, but we are comforted in that suffering. So we see that God has shown us love. God does give us comfort. We are encouraged. We are comforted. And then he says that we are partakers of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. 1 Corinthians three sixteen says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So this is a statement of truth that if we indeed have believed in Christ, if we indeed have been adopted by the family of God, by God himself, then the Holy Spirit indwells in us. We are partakers of the Holy Spirit. We are no longer dead in spirit, but we are alive because of the Spirit of God that has been given to us. We are partakers of the Spirit. We are able to withstand temptation. We are able to confess sins to each other. We are able to persevere because of the grace given through us, because of the strength given to us through the Spirit of God. Otherwise, the Christian life is literally impossible. It's not possible. But because we are partakers of the Holy Spirit, we are empowered to live the Christian life. Partakers of the Holy Spirit. And then it says that we have been recipients of God's affection and sympathy. The Greek word for affection has a root in what is referred to as the most inward parts like the the guts of of a person or an animal that type of understanding that through the most inner affections of god we have been shown that love that affection now granted this is what we call an anthropomorphism which is god describing himself in terms that we as humans can understand. God coming intellectually to our level so that we can understand a bit better of who He is. So that, that in itself is a sign of God showing us mercy, that affection. And then sympathy. That word is translated as compassion, pity, mercy, a deep awareness of and sympathy for another's suffering so without christ without god we have been shown that sympathy that affection god has reached out with it being unmerited we do not deserve it yet god has gotten out of his way to rescue us and therefore shown us his affection and his sympathy romans 5 8 reminds us it says But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Right? So we see this pattern now. This is what... Paul is telling the Philippians before he demands them to be united in the church. First, he tells them what God has done for them. Can we say that of us here at Acts Reformed Church? Remember, brothers and sisters, God has given an encouragement in Christ. God has given us comfort in Christ. God has made us partakers with him of the Holy Spirit in Christ. God has showered us with unearned affection and sympathy in Christ. Those are things that have been done already as we are part of God's family. So now, understanding what God has done, theological term for that is the indicative. What has God done? This will now should move us to the imperative To what is going to be commanded of us, what's going to be expected of us. Like the child that has been loved, raised, cared for, provided for. That should enact some response from that child. In like manner, because we have obtained all these spiritual benefits, now there's an expectation back. And it cannot be out of impulse, it needs to be from the heart, it needs to be genuine. Which leads to a second point. What is expected is church unity. And that will be centered around God's word. It needs to be accurate. Theologically accurate. Philippians 2.2, 2, the next verse in our study says, Therefore, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full, in full accord, and of one mind. So Paul says, complete my joy. This does not mean that Paul is not joyful already, because in verse 4 of the previous chapter, Paul makes it clear that his prayer for them is already made with joy. He's already joyous to report how the Philippian church is doing. Now, Paul is saying, if you can maintain, if you could beware of division, if you can maintain this unity, that will make my joy complete. That will make me even more joyous. This is where the command, the imperative begins. God has done this for you. Now, because of that, you should do this. The first command is that they should have the same mind. That means that the church should think in a particular manner. This does not mean that everyone should just mind mindlessly just agree. Whatever I'm preaching, you should just nod your head and agree. No, it doesn't mean that. Scripture commands us to think. Scripture commands us to look through the scriptures to see if what we are hearing is true. Right? We have to be of one mind. And that means that we need to think. We need to think carefully about the Word of God. We need to think carefully about the intake of information that we receive in order to compare it to God's Word and see if it aligns. That is the standard romans 12 2 says do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of god what is good and acceptable and perfect see christianity part of part of the call to to follow christ is to think to be renewed by the transformation of our mind now the spirit has made us alive Now we are to have discernment on what is true, what is perfect, what is acceptable, what the will of God is. We need to think. The key here is that a mind transformed by the gospel does not think like the world. If you claim to be a Christian and you have no issue with the way pop culture thinks of morality or let alone you agree with them, it is a sign. That your mind is conformed to the world and not transformed by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That is a relatively easy test. Do you find yourself agreeing with the morality promoted in pop culture? So Paul calls them to have the same mind. That means having a biblical worldview, submitting what the word of God to what the word of God says. To acknowledge who God is, to acknowledge our need for Him. And in, in humility, correct each other, call each other out when the need arises. Having the same mind. It's an issue of worldview. Then He commands them to have the same love. That includes love for God and love for a neighbor. John thirteen thirty three says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. So the key here is, as we spoke a little bit earlier, the theological belief must not only be true in itself and stop there. No. When that truth is adopted into our lives, it will be seen in love. In the love that we have for each other. And therefore in the unity that will be experienced. And that love will expand to those outside the church. We are going to be loving. We are going to be compassionate. Because we are putting into practice the truths that we are learning from God's word. Having the same love. And then Paul says to be in full accord. Being united in the same character, in the same affections, and especially in the same mindset. Being in full accord. The Bible also says, how could two walk together unless they agree, right? We need to be in agreement. So belief in the genuine gospel will give genuine unity. The same mind, the same love, being in the same accord. These are based on what a church believes. What the church believes about the word of God, what the church believes about the gospel. And that is encompassed Traditionally, in a doctrinal statement of the church, unity that honors God is not an anything-goes approach. Okay, we're going to hold church service, we're going to hold church meetings, Bible studies, and we really don't know what's correct and what's not. We'll kind of just take it along as it goes. And whatever somebody's opinion is, is basically no more better or worse than the person next to them. Like, What do you think this means? No. It is not an anything-goes approach. Unity must be based upon something. And we unite around the Word of God. Traditionally, in Orthodox Reformed tradition, we unite with the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, which we are studying that in our Tuesday group, We are now up to the 15th chapter. We just finished the 15th chapter. All that to say that we unite around the truths of the gospel, the truths of the Bible. And if we have a question about what the Bible teaches about a particular topic, that is our reference of where we go so that we know where to go in the Bible. We always submit to scripture. And our doctrinal statement would be the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. If we do not have a foundation, we will be in danger of being tossed to and fro, as the scripture says, by every wind of doctrine. No, we need to unite around the word of God. Around what God has commanded for us as his children. And that's why it's important to be clear on the matters of Christian life and practice. So then a unified church will be solid in biblical theology and not be tossed to and fro. It will not depend, the unity will not depend on the trends of culture or even on the trends of Christian pop culture. Uh, recently this week I saw a, an article in which a, a famous Christian author was retracting some statements he made that were accurately stated a decade ago or so. Now he's apologizing for that because now he's offending the, the mob of the authoritarian left. How could that be? It's like, well, I, I better not offend the mob, so I'm going to apologize for that, even though that's what God's word says. That unity with the ungodly becomes enmity with God. Make no mistake. And we cannot unite with that. We unite around what the scriptures tell us unequivocally and unapologetically and let the chips fall where they may. So we unify based on what the Bible teaches, being of one mind, of one accord. If we unify around anything else, as the hymn says, that is sinking sand, we're going to be lost. So unification around the Word of God, around truth, around theological certainty doesn't stop there. It needs to be put into practice. And that's the third point. Church unity will show itself in humility, serving one another. Because we could go the other way and say, well, we're accurate according to what Scripture says. So therefore, I am better than all of them. Or I am better than you because you don't believe the same way. Nope. It's actually the opposite effect, we should be humbled by the fact that God has given us understanding, and therefore that humility will show itself in our attitude, in our character towards one another and servanthood towards one another. So true church unity will show itself in humility. Let's take a look at the last two verses, Philippians three and four. I mean two, verses three and four. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. So the unity that God is calling us to in his church would look like this in practice. Humbly serve one another. When was the last time? That I did an act of service to a brother or sister or a family in the church. What was the last time that I saw that a brother or sister might have needed help in something? And I stepped in and said, Hey brother, sister, I'd like to help out. Let me help. That is a fruit of us being mature, of us being unified in the church. Do we care only for our desires, for our interest, or are we putting the interests of our brothers and sisters as our own. It says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition. The meaning of that, that phrase in the Greek is a strong drive for personal success without regard for morality. Now there's nothing wrong with having a strong drive for success, but are we honoring God in our strive for that success? Or it's our attitude, you know what, as long as I take care of what I got to do, whatever is left, I'll, I'll contribute to the church. Or whatever time or treasures or talent is left, I will sparingly uh, give that to the church. It's saying that's not the way to go because that's selfish ambition. And then conceit, that means being vain, conceited. Like, look at me, I'm I'm better. What I'm doing is better than what you're doing. And yeah, because I'm doing it for myself. I really don't care about the church. Oh yeah, but God bless you brother and sister. That's hypocrisy. You can't do that. Selfish ambition and conceit. Let's not act based on those. So this is what we should not do. Now it tells us what we should do. How can I serve the people of God? How can I serve God in his local church? So what we should do, he says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. To the world, this is foolishness. Sure, there is a lot of talk about, oh, you have to be kind and practice kindness. Be tolerant, be respectful, coexist. All that is just a bunch of garbage. Because the moment you disagree with them, you will really find out if there is tolerance. You will really find out if they want to coexist. The moment you say, actually, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the, to the father except through Then you will find out that all those platitudes that pop culture talks about is garbage. It doesn't mean that. What they really mean is, I will show you kindness, tolerance, unity, if you comply with what I'm telling you to comply. Otherwise, we're going to tear you down. That is the kind of unity that the world seeks, that pop culture seeks. You want proof of that? Go in public or your social media and post, a man is not a woman and a woman is not a man. How could it be that that is controversial? That's silly and it's funny, right? But how can it be that that's controversial? The reason that is controversial is because God has given over the culture to a reprobate mind. Because in the enmity they have for God, they've already been condemned. And any truth based on morality, based on God's word, is foolishness to them. So can we unite with that? Can we soft pedal that and say, well, you know, that's their way of thinking and we'll just stick here to our little Bible and if it's good. No, we proclaim God's truth and we say that's garbage because God said so. Not because I said so. We cannot unify with that type of worldview. Worldview matters. And yet, the part that is difficult here is that we must do that in humility. Thinking of others more significant than ourselves. Contending for the faith. Proclaiming Christ so that perhaps God will grant them repentance. That's to the people outside. To the people inside, it still applies. We have to be humble and think of others as higher than ourselves. That is hard. That is a call for us to kill our pride. Because our identity is not in self-righteousness, but in Christ. That is a call for us to deny ourselves. Because Christ showed us the example of how to ultimately love others given himself for us in the cross. That is the call to seek peace because Christ has given us peace. We have peace with God, the father through the sacrifice of Christ. What are some of the causes of not being united in church or in our family, in our marriages, in our relationships? We are prideful. We cannot accept our faults. We do not want to apologize. We want the other party to see their wrongs because we're right. That's self-righteousness. And God says, no, in humility, think higher of the other person than of yourself. And that is a tough call that it can only be done by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So that we then can say, you know what? Yes, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. Or what is even more difficult, if it's an issue of morality or theological significance to have the love, the care, the compassion to sit with someone and not be upset with them, to explain to them, to show them from scripture, that takes humility. That's what we're called to do. So there's nothing wrong with looking into our own interest, but not to stop there to look into the interest of others, specifically those in the church. Galatians 6.10 says, Galatians 6.10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Right, that's our call. Treat each other with humility, with respect, with love, compassion, burn each other's burdens, especially to those within the household of God first, to those in the church. So that's the call, not to do conceited uh, actions, not to be thinking of others better than yourself, but to be able to serve in humility. Don't do that, instead do this. So then what are some final thoughts? What have we learned about being unity, about unity in the church, about being able to Love one another, and be humble. This is an exhortation for us, as I believe that by God's grace, we can identify in many aspects with the church in Philippi, that God has abounded in love and mercy towards us. He started to work with us, and he will be faithful to complete that work. The gospel is being preached and being expanded. We can identify with the church of Philippi. And therefore, we should heed Paul's call to beware of division and to encourage us to be united. That is a call for us today. This whole section should be an encouragement to the church, to Acts Reform Church, to keep watch. And remain unified in Christ. And if there is something that uh, might bring strife or conflict, let's talk about it. Let us not keep it inside ourselves until it blows up. We can't do that. That's not biblical. Let's talk about that. Let's bring it up to one another. Paul makes this this admonition. Notice, without a threat. He's not threatening the Philippians this admonition to them is being made out of love, genuine, straight encouragement for them. So be on alert, be on alert of being divided. Secondly, we are reminded of the signs that a church is indeed united in Christ. First, we submit to God's word. That's what we unify from that's what we unify around we do not unify with culture with heretical mega church culture with the pastor's opinion please check everything I say with scripture or we don't decide what we unify based on a race of hands no we unify around the scriptures what God tells us and then that is going to also be seen in humble service to our congregation. To our fellow believers specifically. So how are we doing with that? Are we serving one another? Are we reaching out to one another? Are we serving the church? Are we waiting for somebody else to pick up the slack? If so, my brothers and sisters, this is the time for you to say, you know what? This call is for me. I should step up, I should serve, I should reach out to my brothers and sisters. And that will foster unity, that will foster the love of the brethren. And then lastly and more importantly, let's remember why we do this. What is the motivation? To recap, we do this because God has already given us encouragement, comfort, love, His Spirit affection compassion grace salvation that's why we do these things this cannot be done out of compulsion like the cults do like oh you better fill that list you better check all the boxes or else i'm going to come after you no that's legalism that's not why we do it we do it because we want to obey our lord because we want to honor jesus in being united as a church That should be our natural response out of the love and compassion that God has shown us. And if we're not there, let us align ourselves to obey his command of being unified and of serving each other in the church so that we will be edified, we're going to be benefited from that. And more importantly, Jesus will be honored. It is our prayer that God would encourage us to do that today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for all those spiritual benefits that you've given us in Christ, Lord. We ask that because of your love, your mercy, your kindness, your goodness, your, your granting of us of eternal life, that that would encourage us and impulse us to obey, to trust you, to love you. To trust in the profession of Christ so that his righteousness could be ours and that we could be saved and so that we can serve each other being part of a local church. We thank you for these things this morning, Lord. May we be um, pondering and reflecting, meditating on the truth that we learned today from your word. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen.